Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview from the 2018 Code Conference, which I co-produced with Recode's executive editor, Peter Kafka. This is an interview Jason Del Rey did with Katrina Lake, the CEO of Stitch Fix. Let's take a listen. Good morning, everyone. Um, so a lot of what I do day to day is cover a company you all know well, which is Amazon. And Amazon's obviously dominant when it comes to one main type of commerce, which is I know what I want, I go and I search it in a search box, and I get it delivered to me very quickly. But in an e-commerce world, um, there's still not a lot of companies that have nailed the idea of serendipity or discovery shopping, the kind of shopping a lot of people still do in the physical world. One company that's probably made more strides than most in this way is Stitch Fix. So I'm very excited today to have founder and CEO of Stitch Fix, Katrina Lake, join me on stage. So I know we, we have an audience here, um, tech and media folks, everyone who knows Stitch Fix, but still maybe a small percentage who get confused about how it exactly works if they haven't tried it yet, and you can try to convert them later. So sometimes you get compared to subscription companies, get compared to traditional retail. Give me the 30-second uh, explanation so people, some people in the room aren't confused of how the model works. Yeah, so I think at the core of what we're trying to do is to take this element of um, personal shopping that used to be available to a very high-end customer of somebody who knows you really well, who can make selections on your behalf and have you try things on and make that accessible. How that actually ends up coming to life creates an e-commerce experience that's dramatically different than anything else out there. And so at Stitch Fix, you let us know a little bit about yourself, and then we will have a stylist with the help of some tools send things directly to your home. That is like showing up at Netflix and Netflix just starts rolling exactly what you want to watch. Or it is like sitting at home and having, um, like, or going into a restaurant and the restaurant doesn't give you a menu and just brings you food. Like it is this very hard problem of solving, like what is it that somebody wants and then actually proactively delivering it rather than putting the burden of search on the customer. And so your intro was a good one because I think fundamentally what I find is that what people really want is they want jeans that fit or a shirt that looks good or a dress to wear a wedding with, you know, what the, the part of the shopping experience they don't want is sifting through literally millions of things that you can filter and sort through online. Um, and so, you know, we, we think that we use kind of experts in data science combined to be able to take that burden of discovery um, out of the consumer's hands and to be able to ultimately deliver them with what they really want, which is the clothes that make them feel their best. So we're going to jump into a lot of um, how, the, how the model works today, what it might look like in the future, also my personal experience with it. I'm sure you're excited about that. But the, the last time I interviewed on stage was about a, a little over a year ago, before a big business milestone, which was your IPO in November of this past year. Um, we've seen in the technology world over the last few years, a lot of companies sort of seem, you know, stay private as long as they could. You had a company that was pretty much profitable, able to grow to almost a billion in revenue on just $40 million in venture capital. Um, 
you were coming out after Blue Apron IPO, which while completely different business in many ways, some investors lumped you guys together. And then you had an IPO day where um, maybe your, your price at IPO wasn't what you had hoped for. Why did you make the choice with such a sustainable business that you had to go public when you did? Yeah, I think, I mean, it was definitely a choice for us. To your point, I mean, we were, we were profitable, so we actually we, we didn't need the capital at that exact time. Um, but the business we'd always we had always run it in a very fiscally responsible way. We, to your point, we've been profitable since 2014. It is now it's over a billion dollars in revenue, and it was created from 42 million, I think, of venture investment. Um, and so, um, you know, I think we always knew that this was a path that would be available to us. And um, you know, while we absolutely were disappointed with the price that was on the day of, um, I think to be able to have a long-term lens of like, you know, I think the, long, the, be the best way for us to be able to create a lot of value over a long period of time was to have, you know, a public event. Would it have been better to do it four months later or four months before? Like, maybe. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, it, it was the right thing for the company. And, um, and I think the company is ready for it. And I think, you know, we've, we've, we're, we've been in the process of proving it. I think we've now um, posted, um, you know, I think three or four consecutive quarters of kind of being in this 20 to 25 percent year-over-year growth range. Um, and I think we've been able to, um, you know, start to show investors that we, you know, we have a very consistent business, that we, um, that we know what we're doing, and that we're doing all the right things to create value over the long term. What, did, what surprised you about that experience? Because I know, I know we have, you know, we have some entrepreneurs on stage today who probably have an IPO in their future, maybe some in the audience as well. Um, what, what did you not expect that you were really perhaps taken aback by in that process? Um, I don't know. There are a lot of things. Um, I mean, I think there is one, one element that um, I regret, I think, is that I feel like we let expectations get really high around pricing. And for us, like, it didn't matter. Our last priced round was in 2004. 14, I think at like 300 million, and I think we somehow let expectations around like how valuable the company could be um, get high, and you know I think that made the $15 price feel disappointing when I think in reality it didn't have to be, and so I think there was a little bit of just like you know how can you how can you try to create some buffer around what external expectations might be so that reality can be on a smoother trajectory that I think I um, I wish that you know we maybe had done a little bit differently. And to put in perspective, the $15 price put your value at something like a billion and a half dollars or something? Something like, like that. Okay, coming from three. We've been, and to be clear, we've been consistently trading pretty like significantly above that. I think right. we've been probably $5 north of that pretty consistently since. Right, and that expectation came from where? that was set. Is it the best? <laughs> I mean, it, it came from honestly all over. I mean, it came from external parties who potentially would have wanted to invest in the company. It came from banks. It came from, I mean, Stitch Fix is an unusual company. Like we, um, the, we turn our inventory really fast. We're really capital efficient. In some ways, you know, we can look like a retailer. In other ways, we look more like a technology company. Um, you know, they weren't, there weren't perfect comps for the business. And so, um, and I mean, I think another learning was that, you know, there was more education 
education um, and more trust building with investors that um, as a private company I used I would always preach like you should always be building relationships with with investors and potential investors and I don't think I did that really as a public company as as we were preparing to be a public company we were I mean you know this but yep. we were very secretive we weren't sharing any numbers I was very reticent to meet with anybody um, and that may have been the right reason right things from a competitive perspective but it certainly meant that um, you know just like a private investor with a public investor you have to build trust you have to kind of you know build this rapport face to face and they have to understand you and your vision um, and you know that whole process is often it takes longer often than a 45 minute meeting in a road show when you know you're doing 20 of those in a row so I think you know those are a couple of things that I learned so you, you talked about competition a little bit and um, obviously the elephant in any e-commerce discussion is uh, is Amazon, right? And so I talked about the intro, the differences in between what they're good at and what your business is really good at. Um, at the same time, they're making a huge push into fashion. They've launched sort of a test called Prime Wardrobe where you could try on a couple of fashion items for seven days. You are choosing it though still. It is, there are no stylists work on, working on it. How much do you think about that? I mean, we definitely think about them a lot. I mean, they're an amazing company. They've done a lot of amazing things. Um, I think in terms of, you know, direct competition, I think um, they, it's just a fundamentally different problem. Like, I think the part of the value proposition of Amazon, part of what makes Amazon amazing is this sea of choice. Like, it's literally millions of things to choose from. And in a lot of ways, ours is almost the opposite of we're sending you five things. Um, and, you know, in some ways, both of them are hard problems, but they solve very different um, types of solutions. And so, you know, Amazon is amazing at the fulfillment, and Amazon is amazing when you want something cheapest and fastest. Um, but if what you simply want is a pair of jeans or a dress to wear to a wedding, um, those are really hard problems to solve when you're sifting through millions of things which have varying degrees of relevance to you. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think our value proposition is almost the opposite of like, it's not endless choice. In fact, it's a very select um, group of things that we think are highly, highly relevant for you. Um, and I think you know that discovery element is actually some of the hardest part of apparel. I think you know a lot of times you're not looking for jeans that are going to ship to you fastest. You want the jeans that are going to fit your body best. Um, and that is a very different value proposition than I think what Amazon has been historically amazing at. So keyword there, historically, right? Historically amazing at. So a couple years ago, try to make this brief. A couple years ago, Jeff Bezos was on this stage. I found him backstage, um, uh, managed to ask him what he was wearing. This was around the time that Amazon's private label fashion initiative was starting to, to get going. Um, the, the conversation eventually turned to what I was wearing, which was Trunk Club, uh, and I, tr I tried out that service. Um, long story short, at some point, Jeff mentions that you know, he thinks the real key in discovery is matching technology with human stylists, which is essentially, at a high level, your model. That leads me to a couple questions. One is, it seems like Prime Wardrobe is probably the, just the tip of what they're, what they're going after. Um, they bought companies that do uh, fitting technology. Um, second thing it leads me to is um, potential interest in your business, right? So if, let's start there. Um, have you ever, had any discussions with Amazon because it feels like it would be a natural fit for what they don't do well right now. I mean, we were very, as you know, I think as evidenced by the path we took, we are very committed to a 
path of being independent, um, taking the company public. Um, and you know, I think now, actually, I mean, Evan said it yesterday, I think now, of course, I have a fiduciary duty to make sure that we're going to be doing the right thing for the company. So I certainly can't say never. Um, but I think this is a company that um, has a lot of value in of itself. I think there's a lot of potential in future in terms of how big the market can be in penetrating our existing market, but also going into new markets. Um, and so you know, I think today we're, we're committed to the path that we're on. Okay, have, the actual question was, have you ever had any uh, discussions with Amazon in the past? I mean, we, look, we haven't had any serious discussions around combining the companies. Okay. Um, you'd feel, that if there was a potential in the future, you'd feel, you'd feel on good a, about that? We, right now, what I can say is right now, we feel really confident in the path that we're on. I think we are really just scratching the surface in terms of even awareness, I mean, in the men's business in particular, but also in the women's business. Um, there's still new businesses that we are really excited about that are going to add a lot of market opportunity. And so today, we're very, very focused on um, you know, continuing to, to create value for our shareholders and, um, and feel that this is a company that that's really differentiated and deserves to stand alone. So today, let's talk about the business today. You have a couple million active customers, right? Is it two and a, is half. It two and a half million active customers? These are people who are—they're um, not necessarily subscribing, correct? They're—they're mm -hmm. they're choosing a certain cadence, or maybe getting one delivery and then coming back at a later date. Um, over the past year, you've started to invest a little more heavily in paid advertising, right? You've gone to TV advertising. Uh, what, what has shifted in sort of paid advertising channels over the last couple of years, and how does that affect the type of customer you're, you're getting into Stitch Fix? Yeah, so um, let's see. I mean, so just some historical context for the first four or five years of this business, the, all of our growth was organic. And there are elements of that that were amazing. Like it was, you know, it meant that our people were, our clients were telling other people um, every year we'd have marketing budget that we would be setting aside and we would end up not being able to spend it because we would be, um, you know, kind of sending people to an experience where they might have to wait a long time to get a fix. Um, and so- Because of in inventory Because we, or? yeah, because our in our model, we don't want you to sign up. We're not gonna commit to saying we can get you a fix next week if we can't get you one that has relevant product in it. Right. And so what we would do instead is we would say like, thanks Jason, the next available date is 90 days from now. And so we had constraints in terms of trying to hire people fast enough, opening warehouses fast enough. And so um, I think you can go back in our S1 and see some of those historical growth rates, but they were far higher than what we planned for. And they created a lot of operational difficulty for us. Um, and so now we've last four quarters, we've had very consistent growth. Um, that helps us to be able to buy the right inventory, get it to the right people. Um, but that I think being able to have more channels than just organic was really, really important to us from um, just like a business health perspective because um, we needed to be able to have more channels that we could control. Um, and so that adding more channels was really important. Having diversity of channels was really important. To your point, we don't want to be completely you know, kind of all in on Facebook or all in on Google, we wanted to have TV and direct mail and lots of channels that were effective. Um, and so today we are at a place where year to date we're spending about 8% of our revenue on marketing for many e-commerce companies. That's a pretty modest amount and it is helping us to drive this 25, 20 to 25% year over year growth that I described. Um, and so we feel that we, um, you know, have been doing a great job of bringing in a more diverse set of channels. Um, from a client perspective, um, all cohorts look a little bit different. Like we might do 
We've done um, partnerships with American Express or with T-Mobile, or and you can imagine how you can see how those customers might be a little bit different. Um, the good news is that we have all this great data, and so when you're signing up, you're letting us know what you're looking for. And so what that helps us to do is to understand what is our future going to look like, and how can we make sure we're planning our inventory appropriately. Um, and so I would say that there aren't actually huge differences between our paid customers and our organic customers. A lot of that is because of the strategies you, you use in digital marketing around right. identifying who your best customers are and looking for more like that. Um, but of course, you know, the demographics of our customers ebb and flow over time. Um, and I think in those cases, especially the data that we have is really valuable to make sure that we are always having the right inventory for the people who are looking for fixes. So something I've, I find when I cover you know, younger uh, commerce companies or digital first retailers is the idea, some idea from an entrepreneur early on that as they grow, somehow cost of acquisition is going to actually drop. And what a lot of them actually find is early on, you hit your core audience. And then as you sort of expand out of your core audience, maybe quicker than you thought, cost of acquisition actually goes up. And you know, for a venture capital-backed company, that could, that could lead to a lot of problems. Are, are, you finding that, um, are you finding that to be a case, the case? I know we talked about TV advertising on, after one of your earnings calls, and you found that those customers, by and large, were looking for lower price goods. And that has some effect on your inventory and also margins and all that. So um, do, do you think you've sort of saturated the core Stitch Fix customer? Definitely not. I think, I mean, a couple things just I'm, on the customer acquisition side. Um, one of the benefits of having a business that grew to, you know, maybe it was a quarter billion dollars, maybe it was a third of a billion dollars, all organically, is that that organic growth, what that actually is a sign of is product market fit. This is a business where if you can say to somebody, like, uh, I mean, I'll take myself, like a woman in a dual income household, and you know, you can just let somebody know your preferences, and a stylist is going to ship things, and you only pay for what you keep, like that proposition has enormous product market fit, and that, I think, is what you really are seeing when you see that kind of organic growth. And that has benefited a lot us a lot as we do paid marketing. And so as we're, um, as instead of, you know, a, a friend to friend that was kind of the early thing that now we're telling somebody else, the proposition still has this very strong product market fit and I think benefits us. Um, I don't know that we, you know, we, we've seen, I think what we've shared publicly is that over the last year or so, we've seen customer acquisition costs be stable. I mean, you know, I think this is at a time when we've heard the buzz of other retailers is it's going up or it's more competitive or, you know, and we've seen stability. So does that mean that if, you know, it wasn't more competitive or it wasn't whatever, maybe it would have, maybe it could have been down? I don't know. Um, but we've actually seen a lot of stability and, um, you know, we can look at our awareness numbers, we can look at our spend numbers and our efficiency numbers, and um, we still have a lot of dry power in the market. Um, you've made a couple of additions to your business recently. So for a long time, it was, you know, fill out a survey, essentially, tell us what your style's like, what your sizes are, we're going to send you five things in a box. Um, and if you keep a bunch of them, you get a discount. Now you've asked, sort of added a little bit of a la carte, where you can add on, for the women's business this is, right? Mm -hmm. You can add on undergarments or socks or some other stuff. Exactly. Um, I wonder, so you, you made that change recently. Let, let's start with why, why you sort of made that shift. 
Yeah, that was really around a share of wallet opportunity where there were clients where um, I like I shared data about a, a client that I actually style who I've been styling for four years and she spent something like $10,000 or something with Stitch Fix. And um, what you... Um, you know what? What you can see from Give that her behavior. Give very personal treatment. <laughs> I do. She's yeah. she's my favorite client. Yeah. Um, but she, um, what you can see is like we have the majority of her wallet share, and yet she's still having to go elsewhere to buy things like socks and undergarments and you know bralettes and you know whatever else. Um, and so with with extras, it was really about how can we be that full service solution for, um, especially for those clients where we already have a large amount of wallet share. Um, from a technology and operations perspective is also super interesting because it's not that like you know it's not that selling socks is going to be like a huge market opportunity but um, you know it certainly keeps people out of stores it helps to make sure that we can be a full service solution um, but building that capability is interesting because now it allows us like this testing bed to do all kinds of new stuff because to your point you know we'd really only had kind of our first core model and now allowing customers to choose being able to have a marketplace of sorts where we could um, test and try things that aren't the categories that we're doing today um, from an operational perspective, now our warehouses know how to ship fixes with 10 items in them and six items in them. Um, there's a lot of um, kind of uh, infrastructure stuff that we had to do in order to do that that actually opens up a lot of capabilities that, um, that allow for more flexibility and stitch fix in the future. You mentioned the word marketplace, which um, reminds me of another company with starts with the letter A um, that, that has sort of built in their words like a flywheel where you add more, you know, add more invent, add more sellers, add more selection, customers, more customers, and it keeps going round and round. I'm wondering, uh, Stitch Fix at times has mentioned sort of network effects. Um, is there a flywheel, flywheel opportunity in your business? That, do we not see it yet? Like how do, how do you get a network effects in, in a retail business? Um, I mean, there are certainly network effects from um, kind of us delivering the business. Like there's the scale that we have from um, delivering billion, being able to have billions of dollars of revenue. Like, I mean, there's just a lot of scale effects that help our business. Um, I think one place that we don't spend a lot of time talking about is actually brands. Like, it is a huge advantage that we are a place that brands love to work with. Um, and so, for example, Carl Lagerfeld is doing an exclusive collection for our plus size clients. Like, that is, you know, that, that's not been done before. He hasn't done that with other retailers before. Um, the fact that I think, you know, a lot of search people, the search terms people are looking for is brands. And um, I think it's a really big advantage that we have to be able to be a place that brands love to work and brands want to do special things to work with us. Because you're growing unlike their because, other sales channels. Well, because we're growing, it's a full price model, it's a real matching model, and so we're really you know, kind of finding people who are going to love the brand and not just finding people who want a huge discount. Um, and, um, and it's a very brand friendly, it's good for your brand to be part of Stitch Fix. And I think that's something that, um, you know, is a pretty significant advantage as, as kind of opposed to lots of other channels that have become available to brands that are newer channels in the last 10 years. Um, I promised you we would talk about my Stitch Fix experience. So um, I, I want to make sure we get to that. So I, so I tried a couple months ago. Um, and uh, I was not super successful. So um, I found maybe, maybe I was in denial of like how my you know, dad bod had changed over time um, or, or what, but uh, 
Yeah. Uh, so four, you know, four or five of the things didn't fit and or and or weren't my style. And so then I was left with a choice. I had a $20 styling fee that was going to go out the window or if I kept the cheapest thing in the box, which was the belt that was I was like, OK, about it would be a credit towards that. And so I made the decision I would keep the belt, but it wasn't like a great feeling. Mm -hmm. um, you've introduced an annual um, subscription idea where you can pay $49 a year and not pay a styling fee each time. Um, how do you, is that your answer to having that sort of subpar feeling from me as a customer that I paid $20 for, you know, I didn't want to, I kept something because I didn't want to be out of $20. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. And I think, firstly, like when you have an experience like that, um, giving the feedback is just incredibly important. It's incredibly important for our data science and our algorithms. It's important for the stylists. And so um, I would definitely encourage when things aren't fitting properly or it's not your style, we'd love to understand why. But a lot of people, after the first try, like me, I was like, I'll probably try again because I cover the company, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't. Yeah, I mean, there certainly are people who will try it once and it's not a fit. And um, over time, like what we do is hard. Like it is literally like, you know, you show up at a restaurant and someone just serves you food. And yeah. so I think there are also a lot of clients that give us be the benefit of that and understand that it takes a few times to kind of get to know each other. Um, but there are clients for sure that will show up and, you know, it's not a fit the first time and it's not a fit for us to serve them either. I think we can serve you though. Okay, so it's not, so there isn't, are, are you thinking about ways where around the $20? So, uh, sorry, to come back to the style pass yeah. thing, the style pass is, um, they're absolutely, especially for clients who like um, who have been with Stitch Fix for a long time, who buy a lot with Stitch Fix, um, to be able to remove, like that's not, we can, first of all, we can identify you, so we know if you bought one, but you weren't really excited about the one thing you bought, like we, we can identify you, and we actually treat that as like. What do you mean you can identify like we that know. sounds scary. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, it means that like we know, uh, is this a happy client? Is it a disappointed okay. client, right? So based on the feedback that you share and based, I mean, assuming that you said that you didn't really, anyway. So we can usually figure out who, um, how to treat you differently from a marketing perspective. Um, and um, and I think, you know, this, the style pass does remove some of the, I think, guilt or burden, I think, of the $20 styling fee. And what we found in tests was that it increased share of wallet. And so it made it so that you had a higher propensity to get another fix. It means that you are actually spending more on an aggregate basis with us over an annual basis than, um, than without style pass. And so, um, so yeah, it is, it is meant to remove a little bit of that friction. Okay. We, we have time for a couple of questions if we have them. There's a mic here and a mic here. Otherwise, I'll keep going. All right. I know, I know there are some questions. I'll keep going for now. One thing we haven't talked about is, um, for, and, and maybe it's a good thing, but uh, hope hopefully in the future we won't have to talk about that um, you being uh, a woman and the leader of a tech company and one that went public has been very, very rare. And I'm wondering, you know, looking at the makeup of your board, the makeup of your leadership team, um, I'm wondering in your position, do you, do you feel a responsibility to sort of be outspoken about how you can build a company with women at the top, with people of color at the top? Or are, you, or are you more on the side of letting, sort of let, letting your business speak for itself? Um, as my thought on it has definitely evolved. Um, I, um, it's, I, I think we were always doing the right things for the business and having a diverse team and bringing a lot of perspectives together was part of what we always thought was building 
a great business. And to your point, I think our our management team is 50 is 50 50. Um, but I think I think I'm going to do a quick math in my head. I think 80 percent would ca be categorized as some you know some diversity some diversity element. Um, and you know that it wasn't necessarily that I was going through and kind of building the team that way of like this person needs to be X or Y, but um, but we were able to do that and build the team that was right for the company. And um, I think one of the things, actually one of the things that has been a valuable concept has been this concept of um, culture add versus culture fit. And I think there's an inclination Explain for companies. Yeah. I think companies can say, like, you'll meet a candidate and be like, oh, is this person a culture fit or not? But trying to look for more people who fit in is um, is kind of like the the anti-diversity. And it's um, what you really, I think all of us, growth comes from learning. The way that you are, the way that you are growing as a human, the way that your company grows, all of that is through trying new things, through learning and growing. And that learning really comes from seeing different perspectives and seeing things in a way that you didn't see it before. Um, and that can really, and that can come from the people you surround yourself with. And so, um, you know, I think diversity in terms of backgrounds is important. I also think diversity of thought is important. The fact that a lot of what has made Stitch Fix successful has been data scientists sitting alongside stylists and trying to understand how a stylist brain works. Um, and you know, those are two groups of people that aren't often having coffee together. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I think what I hope is that we can be the living, breathing example of why diversity is important and how you can build that into a big, large, publicly traded company yep. um, and that at least we can serve as an example. But I do also now feel more responsibility, I think, to make sure that people see it as an example of that. Time for one question. Just Tell us who you are. Oh, hey, Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the higher end of the fashion space. Like, I know Rent the Runway is, is kind of in that space, and are you considering going there? What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, we, we don't have any immediate plans to share on that, but um, I think it's definitely interesting. And I mean, the, as I think as our brand has gotten better known, we there's a lot of interest. And I think what I've realized is a lot of the higher end brands have a lot of the same challenges that a lot of the, in, in our case now, we do um, kind of more in the mass market price point and then in contemporary um, and not all the way into luxury, but they have a lot of the same challenges that our contemporary brands do. And so, um, you know, I think I've become more aware of what their challenges are, and I think it's interesting. Um, it would probably have to be a pretty different service, I think, than what we do today. And so, you know, it's definitely not on any immediate timeline, but I definitely think it's interesting, and we'd love to, you know, be part of helping retailers and brands um, over the long term. And I'll report it before it happens. So. <laughs> All right, thank, <laughs> thank you, Katrina. You, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this interview from the Code Conference 2018. We'll be releasing all of the interviews from this year's event in this podcast feed and on Peter Kafka's show, Recode Media. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Recode Media with Peter Kafka to hear interviews with people like 21st Century Fox CEO James Murdoch, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek, and Facebook COO and CTO Sheryl Sandberg and Mike Schrepfer. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. And don't miss my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find that show and Recode Media wherever you listen to Recode Decode. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 
I'm Sean Ramos from the host of Today Explained, a new show from Vox. It's an all-killer, no-filler daily news explainer that'll answer all the questions you ask yourself about the news. Our show's going to explain the news every way we know how. Clips, trips, radio drama, maybe even a song. We're going to drop it for the dinner bell every afternoon. But not on the weekend. The music comes fast, so we keep it spontaneous. Why is there a cliff, motherfucker, not a glacier? She was warned. Nevertheless, she persisted. Gordy, I hope there are tapes. Alternative facts. Very fine people on both sides. Reclaiming my time. Fire and fury. When nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Today Explained starts February 19th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.